2: Thank you, Scott. Hello and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans and here's what's ahead today. The skip is in and the Fed is not going to hike again. Our market guest is sitting right there. He's going on the record with that view and it's not what the broader markets are expecting. So who's getting it right? We will definitely debate. Plus Coinbase sharply lower. The SEC suing the crypto platform for breaking market rules. SEC chair Gary Gensler comparing the crypto compliance process to catch me if you can. But if companies can just operate overseas, does the SEC's verdict matter? We've got the very latest. And the brand new CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors, a disappointing quarter for sales and profits. Could student loan payments be yet another headwind ahead? Before all that, let's get a check on these markets. The Dow just off the session lows, down 54. The S&P only half a point away from its 52-week closing high, but it's in the red by about a point again. 43.05 is that high. And for the Nasdaq, it's 13,240 or so. That's the new 52-week closing high, a little below that uh, but below that right now. Anyway, it's up three points. And if the Nasdaq is positive on the week, it'll be the seventh straight positive week, the longest win streak since late 2019. Got to mention what's going on with the KRE Regional Bank ETF, up as much as 6% today, a little off that right now. Third positive day in four, Live Oak, West, Western Alliance seeing some of the biggest gains. As you can see there, gains of 6 to 10% today. All of this comes as the bank deposit Wars continue, and we will have more on that ahead. Markets expect the Fed to keep hiking after it pauses at this June meeting, seeing almost 80 percent odds of a hike in July. My next guest sees it differently. He thinks this skip will evolve into a pause and says September will confirm the end of the rate hike cycle. Let's bring in Barry Knapp, director of research and managing partner at Ironside's Macroeconomics. And on set. Welcome, Barry. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I, I'm really playing it up like this is a contrarian <laughs> view. I, it should. it seems natural that it's going to evolve this way, or maybe there have been other times when we've paused and then started hiking again, but it, that would just seem so odd, even though that's what the market's betting on.
3: Now, I, listen, I think probably the best analog for this is the 90, very aggressive 94, 95 rate hike cycle. <clears throat> and in that case, the Fed tightened 300 basis points in a year, um, the stock market rallied from that maximum point of hawkishness, the 75 basis point hike in November, through when they confirmed the pause in June, 22%. We've rallied something like 20. So there's lots of similarities, but the big difference though is we had a similar magnitude of yield curve flattening. Twos, tens came down 180 basis points or so, but only to zero. Now we're stuck 100 basis points uh, negative And the banking system has an ongoing problem. And I think what we're going to find over the next three to four weeks as Treasury ramps up issuance is that the money is not all coming out of the RRP program. It's not going to be government money funds that buy every dime of that Treasury bill issuance. It's going to put more pressure on bank reserves so that we have another leg lower in that deposit growth. Credit growth is decelerating rapidly. Just to
2: to mention, we're literally about to talk with my next guest, Brian Reynolds, about that exact issue of deposit flight going into money funds. So your point about that is simply that we're going to see renewed stress on the banks and maybe on on broader kind of economic growth.
3: Correct. So I've described it as the Fed's trilemma. We are going through disinflation. That was my main thesis for the first half of the year. We're going to lap two very hot comps for CPI. We're bottoming right about now, but we won't, of course, know that until July. At that point, CPI is probably going to be 3.4%, meaning by the time we see the June number. Um, That takes some pressure off the Fed. It doesn't get them back to target, but they should be patient with respect to that. Um, Though at the same time, the pressure on the banking system is going to build. I suspect by the fall... Bank reserves will fall from their current level of three three point two trillion down to about two seven. Hmm. That will force the Fed potentially to stop quantitative tightening.
2: Yes, and Jamie Dimon has alluded to this already. Correct. That, you know, and we we saw they tried to start it in twenty nineteen and they very quickly had to back off. Let me ask you. So nineteen ninety four was a soft landing, and. It seems like because of certain things, like the tightness in the senior loan officer survey, that we don't have the same setup now that we did then. Unfortunately, I mean, do you think that we're heading into recession here ultimately? Well, that's uh,
3: this is the point that we're at, right? Where it, it's a it's a the probability of recession is much higher in mid 2023 than it was in 1990. Four, because of the fact that that yield curve is a basis points inverted, the banking system is in a much more tenuous situation. No term facility is going to work when you own assets that yield 3% and you finance them at 5%, right? So the only way out of this really is for the Fed probably to reverse some of the rate hikes, and I think they should do a reverse operation <coughs> twist, sell some of their longer-duration treasuries, buy short-duration treasuries, and to, to uh, increase to the reserve, yeah. disinvert the yield curve, yeah. right, steepen it, yeah. of course, and then the banking system can earn their way out of it. Particularly so, when you talk about adding more capital, which sure isn't going to happen right away, but still.
2: One of the if someone was listening to this, they say, "Wow, this sounds pretty bearish." But you've been overweight equities. And why? So and a lot of people have said, Spallanzani and others have said, you know, the market's rallying because it's rallying on the pause. You know, this is all about the Fed right. pause or pivot, whatever you want to call it. But if that's true, why do they still 80 percent chance of a, of a hike in July? Right. Like I could understand if the market was rallying and thought like you think that the Fed was going to be done here. But I don't understand why they would rally if they think they're going to keep going.
3: Yeah. I, I, th- one of my core themes for the first half of the year was until we got a debt ceiling deal, we were going to have plenty of liquidity in the system. But once that debt deal got done, then we were going to have what I'm calling liquidity, another extreme liquidity climate change storm. Hmm. right? So when the Fed started with Q, uh, QE, created all this abundant reserves, it's called an abundant reserve system, they created a situation where we were gonna have these violent storms. Now, I think we're due for one of those storms because of all this issuance that we get, we will probably have a risk-off episode. I don't think the equal-weighted S&P will go down very much at all. The cap-weighted one could go down. We could take a lot of the froth out of so AI you would, stocks and exa- banks.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Just to put a point on it, then, for you're not going to be one of these people saying, "I'm getting in on the Nvidia trade." I'm, you know, I'm piling in on the Nasdaq. N-
3: not now. I mean, I love the idea that we're going to have a very strong productivity cycle throughout the whole of the 2020s because of deeper capital expenditures, because of higher uh, labor dynamism, and because of technology investment diffusing to different industries, not just the producers of that technology, but the consumers. But right now, we're about to have a bit of a liquidity shock. Mm -hmm. And so Things like buying equal weight and selling the cap weight S&P, lightening up your tech exposure. I think you want to be doing those things because we have a storm coming.
2: We will leave it there. Perfect place or maybe worse place. But, Barry, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining me today. All right, yeah. Barry Knapp with Sides. While the markets move on from the debt ceiling deal, my next guest says not so fast. Just like Barry, he's warning the agreement could cause more trouble at banks as people drain cash to chase higher-yielding money market funds. U.S. banks already saw their larger deposit declines ever in the first quarter, about 2.5% of total deposits, that's the largest outflow recorded by the FDIC since they began collecting data in 1984. Let's bring in Brian Reynolds. He's chief market strategist at Reynolds Strategy. Brian, welcome. And tell me exactly about sort of how this might play out and the effects on the market and the economy.
4: Well, I've been on with you the last couple of years saying how complicated this environment is. It's going to become more complicated because we have money market funds surging and bank deposits declining. Because people are realizing that money market funds yield much more than banks, and so we're seeing a shift. It was a crisis in March when SVB Bank went out of business. But that woke people up to the idea that money market funds yield more. And so we're seeing a transition out of banking into money market funds, and that means less lending for consumers and businesses.
2: And absolutely. So now that and you've heard what Barry just said about that, you know, a lot of people, I think, Brian, recognize this dynamic, but (laughs) some of them remain bullish or or, or sort of look at the stock market and say, okay, well, look what, you know, risk is doing or, okay, well, the Fed's going to respond to this and and have to pause. I mean, you know, so kind of play this story out to, to the conclusion you think it's headed towards.
4: So the result for stocks has been it's been a choppy environment for the last year and a half. You've had negative things go on, like the bank crisis, like the surge in the money market funds, but you've had positive things like companies building up for buybacks. Buybacks don't lead markets, so I think there'll be a negative surprise due to lending from banks. And I want to be a buyer of that surprise because eventually buybacks will take over. I think it's going to be choppy for the next part of this year, but next year I think it'll be a better environment. So I want to be a buyer on weakness I want to be a seller on strength in the near term, eventually leading to higher stock prices.
2: I was going to ask about that because so far this year, and we've been talking about going into the summer, your concerns and how you would be selling any rallies. Is that a change of view now? Have we hit an inflection point? And if so, why?
4: I don't think we've hit an inflection point because all of a sudden with the debt deal, people started worrying about the supply of treasuries that the government's going to start issuing. I think that supply will be overwhelmed by demand because we went on a buyer strike during the debt ceiling battle. But right now, people in the stock market are worried about that. If they're worried about that, we've seen in the last year and a half, that pushes stock prices down. I wanna be a buyer of that. And if we rally too much in the near term, I wanna be a seller of that.
2: So Range, I'm surprised to hear you say that you're a little bit more optimistic as we head into 2024, which is exactly when a lot of, uh, people say, if we haven't been in recession by then, then for sure 2024 would be the moment.
4: Well, I think that'll be a positive surprise. And I think we'll start to see buybacks start to lead because companies have been announcing more buybacks, even as they've slowed their actual buybacks. That buildup of buybacks, I think, will lead us in 2024. But I think we need to get through 2023 first.
2: Final question, Brian. How did companies behave in terms of buybacks, Um, you know, leaning into them or maybe backing away from them during the financial crisis, because it's always my understanding that they tend to kind of buy high, (laughs) not low. Um, And it sounds like you're expecting them to maybe start picking up those buybacks if a recession were to come.
4: They used to buy high 20 years ago, but in the last decade, they've become laggards. they followed stock prices. They buy when prices go up, but they don't buy when prices go down. So I think if we have a downturn in stock prices, That will slow buybacks even more. But then on the ensuing rebound, I think they'll pick up and lead us into 2024.
2: Well, that would be a very different and welcome perspective uh, based on what most are bracing for. Brian, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Brian Reynolds with Reynolds Strategy. Still to come, the crypto crackdown. Regulators announcing charges against a second crypto firm today. What does it mean for crypto holders and the exchanges themselves? Plus, three key consumer names giving us a read on the economy. We're talking soup, spirits and skeeball ahead in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at the markets as the Dow tries to go positive. It's only down eight points. The S&P is back up by five. The Nasdaq's up by 28 and the Russell's up by 44 as the regional banks power that today. The 10-year yield, 370. We're back after this.
1: This is The Exchange on CNBC. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it.
5: You stumped this charming devil. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.
2: Welcome back, everybody. A shocking twist in the world of professional sports, the PGA Tour teaming up with rival Saudi-backed Live Golf. The two entities signed an agreement to enter a deal. And a memo to players, PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan acknowledged there is much work to do to get us from a framework agreement to a tentative agreement, but that a partnership will, quote, supercharge the PGA's future. While the Saudi Public Investment Fund governor told our own David Faber this morning, he expects the merger to be done in a matter of weeks. The deal would end the multiple antitrust suits Live and PGA have filed against each other in recent months. But one outstanding issue are concerns about Saudi Arabia's human rights violations and whether it's using these deals to quote unquote sports wash. Joining me now to weigh in on it all is NBC and Golf Channel sportscaster Mike Tirico. Mike, thank you so much for your time this afternoon.
1: Kelly, good evening from Paris. We're here getting ready for uh, one year out in the buildup to the Olympics. And wow. we had a sports bombshell drop on us over here.
2: Unbelievable. And yet, I mean, listen, Donald Trump, I, I saw a year ago he had told uh, players of the PGA Tour to take the money because he thought they might end up combining. So uh, perhaps it's just deal making. What is the real significance of this? And what do you say to golf fans who are like, so is the PGA Tour now controlled by the Saudis and, and sort of must feel a little confused?
1: Yeah, there there are a lot of answers that need to come, and some of them are going to come, at least for the membership of the tour, in a few hours when Jay Monaghan has a players meeting at the Canadian Open, the RBC Canadian Open, which is happening this week. A lot of the guys who stayed on the PGA Tour, Kelly, had opportunities to take big money, eight, in some cases, nine-figure deals. That's what was reported for Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods to jump over to Live Golf. Those guys didn't. They stayed loyal to the PGA Tour. They know their reasons. They've expressed some of their reasons for staying loyal, history of the game, legacy of the tour, uh, some of their feelings about where the money was coming from. All of those things factored for many players. Other guys went, Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, Phil Mickelson leading the charge. So now those guys get to come back with their money Mm -hmm. and compete on the PGA Tour. And the guys who stayed, they have nothing to show for it. Somewhere between uh, a business deal gone bad And guys let down by their leadership in some regards as well.
2: Will somehow the the rest of the players be compensated, the ones who held out? I mean, will this somehow make the PGA Tour more lucrative for them? Because otherwise, I'm not sure how how they must feel. It must feel pretty upset.
1: It has become more lucrative for them for a variety of reasons. We're talking about Saudi Arabia's PIF, their public investment fund, which is part of their Project 2030 as they try to go to 13 different sectors and spread Saudi Arabia's impact around the world. There's also this thing called the PIP, which was the player impact program. And that was a pool of money that the PGA Tour players got for who moved the needle the most. Everything from how often you're on TV to Google searches and all that, that came about with a little bit of this Showing live at the doorstep and offering money. How do we get the best names more of the money than just having to go out and play for it? So they have received some money, but nowhere near what they could have otherwise. There are so many questions. What is this new entity going to look like? This for-profit entity, right. while the PGA Tour says it will remain a 501c6, there are a lot of questions that need to be answered in this. And this, it, at this point, this isn't an, an MOU. This is not a done deal. So the deal-making is going to answer a lot of the questions that we all have right now.
2: And just back in February, LPGA star Anna Norquist had ended her endorsement deal with Aramco uh, due to backlash over their partnership. So again, you have that pushback in one direction with this bombshell announcement going completely the other way. So perhaps, as you intimated, there could still be something that makes this fall apart, or perhaps if the Saudis throw enough money at it, they can kind of push over some of those concerns What do you think their ambitions might be next?
1: Kelly, this is a hard dance because everything from Jamal Khashoggi to 9-11 to sports washing, all of these and other human rights issues have come up regarding Saudi Arabia's government. On the flip side of this, you've seen Saudi Arabia continue to invest in and be a part of the sports world. And separately, let's look at the U.S. government relationship with Saudi Arabia. The Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, happens to be in Saudi Arabia doing a couple of days of meetings, which is furthering the meetings that President Biden went over to Saudi Arabia to have last year. The U.S. State Department just put out a memorandum today talking about the relationship between the United States government and Saudi Arabia, pointing to the eight decades of partnership together along the way and talking about building a new embassy in Riyadh. So the U.S. government is Speaking and acting as if Saudi Arabia is a partner. That was the word used in the memo from the State Department today. So you parallel that with the concerns on the other side for what Saudi Arabia might be doing to clean up past transgressions with their money involved in American sports, where we hadn't seen international money dominate American sports. Sponsors, yes, here and there, but not dominate right. American sports as they tried to do here with Live Golf. Yep. Fascinating. Tough to answer. I don't think we have the answers right now. But, man, this uh, this has really stunned the tour. A lot of the big names in golf I had no idea this was coming.
2: Wow. Mike, thank you. Uh, joining us, as you said, on a very busy day over there in Paris, uh, getting ready for that. We really appreciate your time.
1: You got it, Kelly. Thank you.
2: Mike Tirico with NBC Sports. Now to crypto. Under increasing pressure from the SEC in the past 24 hours, they sued crypto exchange Binance and its CEO for U.S. securities violations. Then today sued Coinbase for operating as an unregistered exchange and broker. Those shares are down 13 percent and 20 percent in two sessions. And based on what SEC chair Gary Gensler said this morning, there could be more charges on the way.
3: This is a field. It's built. The whole business model is built on non-compliance with the U.S. securities laws. And we're asking them to come into compliance. And they're going a bit of catch us if
6: you can.
2: Meantime, Bitcoin hitting its lowest level since mid-March in the 25K range before rebounding to around 26,000 now. And all of this as one of the world's largest fintech conferences is taking place in Amsterdam. CNBC.com tech reporter Mackenzie Sigalos is there. Mac, what's the feeling on the ground? Hey Kelly, so virtually
7: every crypto firm I've spoken to on the ground here at Money 2020 says that the U.S. is looking a lot less viable as a home base for their operations, in large part because of this whole regulation by enforcement dynamic spearheaded by the SEC. Names like Tether, Bitfinex, Fireblocks and WorldPay are all in Amsterdam for this conference where everyone is bullish on Europe as the new destination for crypto firms. The Netherlands, as part of the wider EU bloc, falls under a new and pretty revolutionary set of crypto regulations called MiCA, which provides hard and fast rules about how to operate a compliant digital assets business, which is what many of these firms say that they have been craving for almost a decade. Now, with Mika, the licensing regime for crypto becomes much smoother. It also translates to easier access to the entire EU instead of individual countries. You have the ability to passport rights, so you can launch in one country and have that license apply in other EU member states, which definitely presents major opportunities for quickly scaling a business. So, if anything, Folks are still bullish on the space. They're just bearish on America.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What about so we've seen some outflows, I understand, uh, Mackenzie, from Binance, for instance. What do we know about the impact this is having on Binance and on Coinbase at this point?
7: Yeah, so, Callie, we saw this almost instant erosion of confidence after that Binance news yesterday. Trading activity took a hit. Nansen data showed that investors pulled $791 million from the crypto exchange in a 24-hour period after Binance and its founder were charged with 13 different securities violations by the SEC. There's this big concern that retail money is just not coming back into the space. Meanwhile, Binance's native token, which is a good indicator of confidence in the platform overall, hit its lowest level in three months after having its worst day of the year yesterday. Meanwhile, you said in your intro,
2: Coinbase's stock is way down in the last, uh, you know, since it's in this trading day, since we got the news. Absolutely. Mackenzie, thank you. We appreciate it. Mackenzie Cigalos reporting. Will the SEC's actions chill interest in crypto assets like Bitcoin? We've still seen plenty of involvement from major financial institutions in offering crypto up to clients. For more here, let's bring in Emily Parker. She's the executive director of global content at Coindesk. And here on set with me, crypto skeptic and actor Ben McKenzie, also author of the new book, Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of fraud. And so I don't know how many times it's going to take, Ben, for me to not feel a little starstruck. You know, maybe, (laughs) maybe five, maybe 10. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So as I just try to, you know, put my, my crypto, you know, head on while I talk. Okay. Let, let me actually start with you because do you feel vindicated to some extent? Or let me read uh, a tweet from Bill Miller, Quacho the fourth, who said, it's a great day for Bitcoin and self-custody. Shutting down the bucket shops will bolster confidence in the legitimate technology.
8: Well, let's hope so, right? Let's hope that shutting down bucket shops leads to you know whatever crypto is supposed to do in real life. But I've spent the last two years investigating cryptocurrency, traveling around the world, going to El Salvador, the only country in the world that's trying to use crypto's money. It's not working. Uh, interviewing people like Sam Bankman-Fried, going to the Miami uh, Bitcoin conference where you interviewed me. They were talking about Bitcoin as an inflation hedge back then. I don't, I'm not sure how that worked out. Uh, so the story will keep evolving. Uh, but I think the question is really, what is the innovation here, right? Blockchain's not new. It's over 30 years old. It goes back to 1991. Stuart Haber and Scott Stornetta at Bell Labs building off the work of crypto- cryptographers like David Chaum. So what's the innovation? But is the innovation separating retail traders from their money?
2: Let me ask this, which came out from the Coindesk CEO himself, who said, if all of this is the case, why did the SEC let us register as a public company knowing our business model?
8: Well, anyone's allowed to register, and Coinbase did file the right paperwork. Uh, Gary Gensler came in, I believe, a few days after Coinbase's IPO. So you can blame Gensler all you want, but like, he literally wasn't in charge then. Um, that's an interesting question and a question that I cover in the book. How did crypto metastasize to such a degree that some 40 million Americans bought it? Um, I think there's one of the answers to that is that there is a gray, gray area between commodities and securities regulation. Right that, you know, obviously, benefits in the CFTC and the SEC, but also different committees with different jurisdiction. Um, and basically, the notion that what is a commodity versus what is a security. Mm-hmm. If something has a futures contract under the CEA, the Commodities Exchange Act of 1936, it can be classified as a commodity if it has not been classified as a security. Right. That's created a gray area. In the case of area. Bitcoin, yeah. In the case of Bitcoin. Thank you. So, it's it's an it's an area that i think crypto is exploited.
2: Let's bring Emily into this conversation. And Emily, what do you think the typical retail holder of these uh, crypto assets is likely to do in response to everything that's happened over the past 24 hours?
9: Well, all i can say is that if you look at the prices right now, i was just looking at CoinDesk's price page, it's, it's remarkably green considering what's just happened. I mean, the SEC has just filed lawsuits against A, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world, and B, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in America by a long shot. And you have crypto prices by the standards of crypto volatility are relatively static. I mean, you're not seeing major changes, again, by the standards of crypto, as we know, which is quite a roller coaster. So in that sense, I would agree with what you just reported. This is actually kind of bullish for crypto. I mean, if this isn't going to take crypto down, I'm not sure what will. Um, So, yeah, I, I think if you're looking at crypto prices itself and specifically Bitcoin, I think this is, you know, for Bitcoin maximalists, this is kind of like a proof of concept because Bitcoin appears to be One of if not the only token that is decentralized enough to not be considered a security, at least in the United States. So Bitcoin is not reacting that much to this news, at least, you know, if you look over the past 24 hours. Do
2: you think that institutional investors will I mean, so how are they supposed to engage uh, with these platforms or is it fine to engage with these platforms or are these platforms ultimately going to be moved overseas? And what would those what the impact then be?
9: Well, right. So there's two separate issues here. Binance, as we know, is already overseas. So I think it's an open question how much this will impact Binance over the long run. Binance is very active all over the world. So I'm not sure how critical the U.S. market is to its survival. Um, you know, Binance has been saying all along that it doesn't have U.S. investors. Obviously, the SEC argues with that. Um, Coinbase, you know, also is has been threatening to move overseas. But again, you know, this is crypto is not primarily a U.S. phenomenon. And I think the price action really indicates this, that, you know, there is there are there's crypto investment. There's crypto trade having all over the world. So worst case scenario. And these these companies really can't make it in the US. It's definitely not the end of the crypto story. In fact, far from it. I mean, we're seeing, as you just reported, Europe is becoming an increasingly important player in crypto in Asia, you know, which has been an important player for a while. And you now you have Hong Kong welcoming crypto. So the story is far from over, regardless of what happens to these two platforms. Ben, I'll give you the last
2: word.
8: It's not an honest market. Um, I don't know how else to say it.
2: What, what's um, not honest about it? Like if I'm if I'm the retail trader who says I like the Bitcoin white paper and I like the community and I want to hold it. Great.
8: As long as you're willing to put real money into something that calls itself a currency that is not a currency by any reasonable economic definition.
2: It's gold. It's like digital gold. Kind
8: of. It's it's an investment. Right. They want to market as digital. gold. That's fine. As long as you're willing to separate from your real money in the hopes that you can make something out of this investment. Go for it. I would just caution you, and I would encourage you to read my book or listen to my book. I'm doing the audio book. I just came from that, so you can, you can listen to it for the bros out there that don't want to read. Uh, just, I don't know, take a gander. Uh, I have spent two years looking at this. I interviewed Sam before he was arrested. Uh, we talk about Binance. Jacob and I wrote an article about Binance in The Washington Post last year. Uh, there's a heck of a lot of fraud. So let's see how much fraud there is, and then see where that leads us.
2: Yeah, and where we are. I'd be curious even just six months, even a year from now uh, as the dust settles. Thank you both for your time today. Really appreciate it. Ben McKenzie and Emily Parker. Coming up, the world's largest venture capital firm is breaking up. Is it about China or internal drama? That's next in today's Tech Check. Dow's down 69. The Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Sequoia Capital, one of the world's largest and most vaunted venture firms, is setting up, splitting up into three independent entities, one focusing on the U.S. and Europe, another on Southeast Asia and India, and another that will focus solely on China. Is this a preview of more corporate breakups to segment their China business or something unique to this company? That's the subject of today's Tech Check with Deirdre Bosa. Hi, Deirdre.
0: Uh, Kelly, it might be a little bit of both, of course, with geopolitical tensions rising. And remember that Sequoia has that big investment in ByteDance, but they largely operated separate. That is Sequoia's U.S.-based business and its China business. So there may have been some pressure there. But also, just look at the nature of venture capitalism. It has been changing for a decade. Basically, the returns were huge. You just had to kind of throw a dart and hit a company, and it was growing so fast. The environment that we've been in over the last few years, when valuations have come down, when maybe – Um, the VCs have had a little bit more control, whereas the founders before could just pick who they wanted to work with. That has changed a lot of it. And Sequoia has been hit hard by this changing environment. Early stage, yes, a lot of their investments are fine. But Roloff Botha, who leads the firm, has still had to see the write downs of billions of dollars in valuations in their portfolio companies. I also thought it was interesting, Kelly, what the leaders of the Other units had to say about this move. There was Neil Shen, who's going to be leading the China unit. He said, many Chinese entrepreneurs probably don't even know how to spell Sequoia. And then you have the head of the India business, who's going to be taking that over, Shailendra Singh, saying, we love Sequoia, but our brand is our relationships, and we feel that our own brand is strong, which is quite a statement, because as you said, Kelly, Sequoia is sort of seen as the gold standard in venture capital. It has such a prestigious name. It's known all over the world, but what they are essentially saying is that you know the brand isn't what it used to be, at least in these markets, and they want to strike out and do it there on their own. Yeah, why would they
2: jettison the brand if it's the most important asset that they have? It it and yet that's what they're issuing in a couple of these key markets.
0: Yeah. Well, I spoke to Roloff Botha this morning um, shortly after the news came out, and he said that this was largely a business decision. Um, The markets have become more complicated. He said that founders have global ambitions and borders have become fuzzy. They're seeing more instances of Portfolio conflicts and brand confusion. And that is the idea that a venture capital firm could become so big that they invest in different companies that ultimately end up competing with each other. Take, for example, a square and a stripe, right? One is sort of the back end and one is consumer facing, one's physical, one is web only, but they're kind of merging now. And so he's saying that there's conflict almost between their portfolio companies. He says that, but I would note, Kelly, as well, that there's plenty of other venture capital firms. I think about a Tiger or a SoftBank or even a DST that has similar relationships between their portfolio companies and a presence in areas like China where geopolitical tensions are rising. And I'm not sure we're going to see them separate their businesses.
2: Exactly. That would be more of a tell, I think. Deirdre, great reporting. Thank you so much. Our dear Trebosa Coming up, a check on the consumer. Three names reporting, all lower on the year. and We've got the action, the story, and the, and the trade on them. There's a little preview. It's coming up next after a break.
6: You just came yeah. from China. Yeah. Uh, and you visited Taiwan. Yeah. What's your message to American CEOs who are trying to still do business in China? Is that possible? What's the path to doing that now? Yeah. No, I think, first of all, foreign policy is going to be set by the United States government. And I think if you listen to Secretary Blinken, Secretary Yellen, National Security Advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, the president, they're talking about the right things. What are those things we need to do to make sure we have national security? Certain rare earths, penicillin, kind of semiconductors. And then they also want to deal with unfair trade. But these, you know, this takes time. It'll take a lot of work. It takes professional, proper policies, you know, not just thoughtless stuff. So uh, I think they're doing the right things. They're getting a lot of help from the business community about what's the right way to do it without damaging American international businesses. The other very important thing is these things to be, need to be done on a kind of a bipartisan basis uh, and with our allies. We got to, We have to keep the allies together in this. When we do certain things and the allies get mad at us, that's a mistake. Do so, you get a
3: sense of what the threat is to Taiwan?
6: I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about that. But but we went there. I went there to say hi to Taiwanese Employees and clients and companies. I was thrilled to be there. They were thrilled to have me there And so uh, I'll leave the tough foreign policy questions to the people whose job it is to do that
9: um, So the meeting was off the record, but can you give us like broad outlines of what messages you gave to these lawmakers? on Well, you the should climate? you should
6: ask them uh, Yeah, I'm not yeah the, They the, said the, you
9: were
3: positive on China
6: Any, I, I, I've written a lot mean? about China read what I've written about. Yeah so, uh, but, no, you know, the, the thing about the economy is that today it's still doing fine. Consumers in great shape. Home prices have gone up for 10 years. Asset prices have gone up. Their de- debt's in good p- position. It's okay. We have issues down the road, you know, and the, the excess money is being spent down, quantitative tightening, this war in Ukraine, oil, gas, et cetera. And, we, you know, we have to deal with those. So uh, hopefully we'll get through all of that. They, so. just, they did just deal with the
1: debt limit without a catastrophe. Does that make you more optimistic? Does, yes. You know, is there a potential here for you know, avoiding a recession and having, you know, a strong
6: economy in the next year? Well, let me separate the two. I think it's fabulous that we didn't have a debt ceiling crisis. I applaud everyone who voted for it, Democrats and Republicans. I think it's great, you know, these, these folks were strongly in favor of, you know, not having a debt ceiling crisis, stuff like that. If I had my druthers, I'd get rid of it one day. It's just one of these things that each side will torch the other side with when they can, when they feel like they've been mistreated, but it, it, is, it is potentially terrible. And, you know, when you travel around the world, you have to understand the United States is the fundamental foundation of the global economy. The U.S. dollar is the fundamental reserve currency. People rely on the consistency uh, standards that we have, the rule of law, our our investor protections. We shouldn't be challenging that. And so I hope one day we do something to eliminate this as a problem. And yes, it's a, po- it's, not, it's a small positive for the economy, or we'll put it the other way around, it'd be a huge negative if it hadn't been passed, so think be this more- is the last question. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it yeah,
5: needs to be yeah. more initiative from the White House or even CEOs to tackle this challenge with China?
6: Oh my God, I, I think you've, they're all talking about it. They've given extensive speeches and comments. They're talking to the business community the right way to do it. I think they're talking to allies the right way to do it. It's just a little more complicated than a binary thing. There's a great poem. Uh, remember that poem, uh, yeah. if you can keep your head about yours when everyone else is losing theirs? That's what you should do in this one. America's in very good shape. They are not a 10-foot giant. We have $75,000 GDP. They have 15. We made some mistakes in the past. Let's just fix it going forward. Uh, we have the most prosperous economy the world's ever seen. We've got very good demographics, all the food, war, and energy we need. No war in North America, South America. We've got the Atlantic and the Pacific, the world's strongest military. Take a deep breath. Is that a campaign speech? <laughs> Thanks, yes, you. Not a, that's not a complete so. No, <laughs>
2: Is that a campaign speech? You heard Amen, our Eamon Jabbers, asking that question to J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, whom we just heard from leaving his meeting with House Democrats on Capitol Hill, referencing if the Rudyard Kipling poem, among many other comments. Meantime, we've got a consumer-focused edition of Earnings Exchange standing ready. We've got Campbell Soup, Brown Foreman, Dave & Buster's all about to report earnings. Let's get right into it with Campbell Soup down 11 percent this year as investors watch to see just how much pricing power is left in their tank. They hiked full-year guidance last release but also fueled some concerns about margin compression Jeffries and Bernstein have both flagged increased promotional spend lately. Rival Smucker this morning said they expect inflation, supply chain snarls and a tough macro to continue to impact results into next year. Jeff Kilberg is here with our trades today. He's KKM financial founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor. Jeff, it's good to see you. We're going to run through these three stocks. Campbell Soup down two and a half percent today. Would you be buying it?
10: You know what? I'm a seller here, Kelly. At the end of the day, this has been a laggard. I want to own General Mills instead. I think a lot of the efficiencies and cost savings that they implemented, those have already been priced in. So this looks like a broken chart to me. I'm staying away, even though I love Campbell's Soup.
2: <laughs> yeah, no insult to the soup itself. Oh, we've got Soup, That's Whiskey right. and Dave and & Buster's. It's an interesting trio here. So let's move on to Brown Foreman Jeff Shears of that company behind Jack Daniels and Corbell, down about 4% this year. Um, perhaps indicating that booze is not recession-proof, although yesterday the company did announce plans to distribute brands in Japan starting in 2024. Analysts watching margins, forex conditions, input costs. What would you do with the stock?
10: Well, Kelly, to piggyback off of Jamie Dimon there, let's take a big deep breath and maybe even take a sip. Let's remember, Brown Foreman, this is Jack Daniels. This is also, if you ever had a Manhattan with Woodford Reserve in it, this is their brand. This is their premium brand. So here's a $30 billion market cap company I want to be a buyer of. I think it has the ability to take over its 50-day and 200-day moving average on great earnings, but it's really fascinating to see that that distribution component you talked about. They're taking it back in-house over in Japan. And Japan's whiskey market is growing at 10% a year. Currently, it's about $4 billion, that Japanese uh, complete market. So it's going to be projected in 2032 at $10 billion. And if you have Jack Daniels and Woodford Reserve, that puts them in a great spot. So I want to be a buyer here, even though it has been a laggard year to date.
2: I thought maybe your taste buds were just speaking for you, but maybe you've convinced me uh, with those remarks, Jeff. Let's move along then to Dave & Buster's, one of the best tickers, uh, play. Shares are down 8% this year. Comps and revenue in both food and amusements did beat last quarter because people are spending on experiences. And I can speak firsthand, you need to bring your kids somewhere. They're expected to be helped by lower food costs now, and guidance will obviously be key to watch. Are you surprised the stock's doing what it's done so far? It's up 4% today.
10: You know what, I'm not surprised, but it is interesting to see a little jump before earnings. But Dave & Buster is a place that is near and dear to my heart uh, with all my kids. But at the end of the day, I think it's a range-bound stock. P-L-A-Y is the ticker symbol. It's a very small market cap. It's under $2 billion. So you have to understand that this is twice the beta of the S&P 500. So this is not really a long-term investment. From a trading perspective, you have support at $30. I think you buy it here, get out the whack-a-mole, dodge the bullet, and watch it go back up to $40. Because this is a stock that goes up and down. And if you look at a chart, it's really provided traders, not necessarily investors, Kelly. It's provided traders an opportunity to get in and out.
2: You're right. Billion and a half market cap. It's tiny.
10: I usually try to be right for you, Kelly. Come on.
2: Jeff Kilberg, thanks for your time today. Always good to see you. You bet. And that does it for this earnings exchange. Switching gears to private equity, last year, KKR sold garage door maker CHI to Nucor for $3 billion. Well, what's the big deal? It was a huge windfall for the private equity firm, but also to the employees, thanks to an ownership structure ginned up by Pete Stavros, KKR's co-head of global private equity. Our Leslie Picker has been following this story and is here with the latest and with the latest company, Leslie, that KKR
11: is hoping to shake up. Hey, Kelly, that's right. KKR announcing it plans to be the new owner of pump manufacturer Surcor, but as part of the $1.6 billion take private every Circor employee, including hourly factory workers, will also get a stake in the company. Broad-based employee ownership has been championed by KKR Stavros. Since 2011, KKR portfolio companies have awarded billions of dollars in total equity value to over 50,000 non-management employees. Stavros says the payoff is huge.
5: The program encompasses a lot more than just handing out stock. It's about giving people a voice in their work, teaching financial literacy driving a really Im- a robust employee engagement effort and it's all of those things taken together that deliver the kind of outcomes we've seen at the you know the other 30 times that we've done this when it's done well all of those metrics go in the right direction value is created and everyone participates at the end
11: they'll likely hold on to Circor for a while but down the road when they do ultimately exit those employees will get cash in a sale or stock in an IPO. Depending on those returns, these payouts can be worth six figures. He says that's created more workforce loyalty, especially in a tight labor market.
5: You can see people less likely to quit their jobs, more engaged on the job. You know, if you look at federal statistics on turnover, we, we're living in a world right now where almost four in 10 Americans quit their job every year. 70% of Americans, according to Gallup, are not engaged on the job. These statistics are they are bad for workers because people are bouncing around from job to job and not advancing their skills, and it's bad for companies.
11: Of course, this program is incumbent upon the deal closing, which is expected in the fourth quarter of this year, subject to various approvals.
2: Henry McVeigh first told me about this, how KKR always tries to do this with equity ownership among employees at companies that they buy or that they're involved with. Um, I wonder if it should be more
11: widespread. Are there any downsides or trade-offs? I mean, do people have to take lower... You know, kind of annual comp in, to make up for this. They don't. It's a great question, and I, I just spoke with Stavros about that as well. It's an added benefit as part of the program. They don't have to take any uh, wage cuts in order to make this happen. They're not taking on any additional risk as a result of that. Um, because that was that was my concern too, given kind of what we're seeing with regard to wage inflation. Is this a way that companies are trying to kind of work around that? No. The answer is it it, it isn't. Uh, the pushback they do get from CEOs is just time management. The ability to kind of oversee see this, manage all of this. It it does take some time, especially the financial literacy component of it, the awarding of the stock, you know, kind of how to divvy it all up. So he says that's the number one pushback they get. Or do people just sell the shares? And, you know, it's sort of like if you want to be incentivized to have the company
2: perform well, you got to hang on to them. There might be people who once they can just say, I'd rather diversify because I don't want all my corporate and, you know, stock ownership eggs in the same basket.
11: Well, they're in a take private like this. They're locked up just alongside KKR's investors. So they will get liquidity. Liquidity Here when KKR investors get liquidity, so they are, uh, nice. from that standpoint, incentivized to stay on until there is some sort of transaction down the road, which these funds, you know, oftentimes can are while. 10 years. Yeah. It, can, it can last a full decade. So fascinating. Leslie, thanks for taking us inside. We appreciate it. Sure, Leslie Picker.
2: Still ahead, shares of Academy Sports and Outdoors hired today despite an earnings miss and weaker than expected comps. We'll talk to very newly installed CEO Steve Lawrence in his first TV interview since taking the job. That's next. Welcome back. Shares of Academy Sports and Outdoors hired today, despite missing on the top and bottom lines. Weaker than expected comps, a lower revision to its full year outlook, but the shares are up a percent and a half. They're seeing 680 to 750, a share of EPS this year and full year sales, a little over six billion. Management saying customers are dealing with macro headwinds and are being cautious with how and when they spend. Joining me now in his first TV interview since taking the helm less than a week ago. Steve Lawrence is the CEO of Academy Sports and Outdoors. Steve, welcome. And it's nice to meet you and have you here.
12: It's nice to meet you virtually, too.
2: You know, we always enjoyed speaking with Ken, and I'm curious uh, about the timing of this because he got to tell us about all the good stuff that was happening, and now you have to come in and tell us about, some, you know, things that are weakening somewhat.
12: Well, I'll, I'll point that out to him. But, you know, I, I'll i be honest, it's been an honor working with Ken for the past four and a half years. and. He's a legend in the industry and certainly I've got big shoes to fill following him into this role.
2: Well, and people really took notice of the stock after they said, you know, hey, you should really check out what's been happening with Academy Sports. And by having him on, he was able to highlight the business model, the growth, you know, where you guys have been making inroads. But a lot of that was hyper fueled by the pandemic. And what happens now?
12: You know, so we just uh, announced back in early April a new long range plan uh, that has three pillars to it. First, new store growth. Uh, we're gonna open up 120 to 140 stores over the next five years. A lot of those stores are gonna be new markets. So, you know, our, our geography right now is in about 18 stores. We think there's a lot of opportunity to expand our store base into new markets, new states. Uh, we think there's still a lot of uh, growth for us in our in our dot-com business. We're at about 10% penetration. We think longer term we can get into the 15% range or higher. And then we've gotta make sure that we increase productivity of our existing store base. So we're also focused on that as well and making sure that the existing stores we have are productive and profitable. So that's kind of the three pillars that we rolled out. And uh, we're very confident in our plans to move forward.
2: Who are you taking share from? Are you? Is it a Dix? Is it a Walmart? You know, when you move into markets where you haven't previously had share?
12: I think it depends upon who the competitive set is in that marketplace. Uh, you know, honestly, we're not as focused on who we take it from. We just know that when we go in, the value proposition that we offer Um, the the strong operating model we have, it translates well into new geographies. And so we're kind of agnostic on where the share comes from. We just know that the share we're going to pick up.
2: Yeah, Ken used to always give us a little bit of insight into what was selling. Remember one time it was, you know, bicycles or, you know, jerseys were a hot seller. And and lately we've had to kind of flip the question a little bit and say, you know, what are some of the weak spots that you're noticing, Um, you know, and where do you see the consumer behaving differently maybe in 2023 than in 2022?
12: Yeah, we've seen a, a real bifurcation in the customer, I think, so far in the first quarter. On uh, one end of the spectrum, you know, the customer's gravitating towards value. So uh, any place they can stretch their dollars, that's working for them. Uh, the other place, though, is newness. Um, you know, we certainly have seen customers drive towards if we have a new brand or a new idea. We've got Hey dude that's in our store less than a year. We launched Birkenstocks this past year. Blackstone and Griddles is working very well. Uh, or in a big brand like yeti uh, where they have new colors and a new uh, water bottle called yonder that's worked very well for us on the flip side uh you know customers uh, aren't um, paying more for the same so in some cases there's been some supply chain pressures out there that push prices up and uh it, customers aren't accepting that if it's the same at a higher price so We've had to be very thoughtful as we've navigated this and make sure that we're representing value and newness to the consumer, because that's clearly what they're voting for.
2: That's interesting. Crocs investors will be relieved to hear that, hey, dude, uh, is is a big uh, area of focus. I I thought maybe you were going to talk about pickleball as well in terms of new sports.
12: Pickleball is another one for us. That's growing very fast for us. Um, You know, and that's that's the point is we've got newness across a lot of different categories. It's really our job as a retailer to go out find that newness, highlight it, and make it a big deal in our stores and, and make sure our customers know we have that.
2: Yeah, and I'm a sucker for those Yeti colors. I go, I know this is irrational, but it's new and it's pretty and, and I like it. A final question then, as you mentioned, customers are pushing back somewhat on price. What you know, When you talk about how much you can see ahead, three months, six months out, I don't know quite what you know the horizon is. How do you expect the summer kind of into the back-to-school season to go for you guys?
12: Yeah, I mean, so we, we revised our guidance down um, from, you know, where it was before where we thought on the, on the upside we could be up to maybe down one to um, down four and a half, down seven and a half. So we think it's going to be a challenged environment the remainder of the year. You know, that being said, um, we can control the things that are in our power, right? We can make sure that we're delivering against value. We've got a strong stable of brands, private brands we can deliver value against. We've got a lot of pipe, pipeline of newness coming in. So we're going to make sure we're delivering against the thing the customers want. And I think that's going to help us gain market share. Are they this. all
2: just, you know, on a plane or trying to get to a, a Taylor Swift concert? Or is, is, <laughs> is that the problem?
12: Uh, I don't know. My daughter certainly partook in the uh, Taylor Swift concert. So,
2: yeah, exactly. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on and good luck. Thanks. Appreciate it. Steve Lawrence with Academy Sports and Outdoors. As the Dow hits a 100 point decline, that does it for us on The Exchange. Power Lunch will pick things up next. Taking a look at this company with shares of more than 4% on the back of an earnings beat. Another read on the consumer with the CEO of Boot Barn. Tyler's got his cowboy hat ready. I'll see him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.